Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast where attitude is everything. As Mark said earlier, technology is our friend until it's not. We just started the show and I actually pushed the outro button. And when that happened, we started, we did the intro and then it just turned off. So I want you to, to realize that no matter what is going on in your life, that the attitude that you take into what it is that you're doing uh, will, will have everything to do with it, not the circumstance. And on today's show, for me, this is my Justin Timberlake. And I'm going to say that for his wife so she knows that she's dealing with the celebrity every single day. My wife and I, when we first got together, uh, when we first uh, started dating and we, we got married, all we would do was watch this man. He is on probably one of our favorite shows of all time. And it has been a, an absolute pleasure just to do the pre-interview. Like we got on the call and just the joy that's in this man's voice, the joy that's in his face and who he is. He's a celebrity to everyone across the planet on one of the greatest shows that's ever been, but he is one of the most humble and most genuine guys in, in spending time with me. We had so many technological challenges this morning, um, but we're here now and we get to spend time together. So please, 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 please welcome one of my favorite people on TV, Pawn Star's own expert, historian, and authenticator, but also this is my favorite title I've ever, I've never even said this word before, retired museologist. And we're going to get into that, but Mr. Mark Hall Patton, make sure that the hyphen is in the right place. Welcome him to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the introduction. <laughs> uh, Mark, uh, help me to uh, help me with this. You said museologist. Yeah, museologist. It's, museologist. It's, uh, yeah, museologist. It, it it has nothing to do with music. It's it's actually the the field of how how to run museums. It's it is a, a field that was created basically in the late fifties, early nineteen sixties, um, for people that were interested in going into you know actually running museums. Um, they, their museums had existed before that, but it was clear that if you were going to run museums, there were a lot of specialized skills that you needed to have. You not only had to be able to do research, but you had to be able to understand conservation. You had to understand how to do exhibits, how to, to care for the artifacts that were in the museums, how to care for your structures, how to deal with... Um, um, school tours, how to deal with the public, how to uh, do fundraising, all kinds of different things that are specific to the museum field. And so there were uh, there was coursework developed. And in fact, one of the first programs that was developed for teaching people about museum work was at the University of Delaware. There was a fellow named Edward Alexander uh, who had started out in the museum field, well, in history and then in the museum field. And Dr. Alexander, his last year teaching was my year at the University of Delaware. So I was lucky enough to have him as my professor. Um, and I got there in, in Oh, shoot, this was 1976, 76 and 77 when I was back there um, and got him as my professor and 
at that point in time, I had my BA in history, went to school there, um, ran out of money at the end of a year, got got through all my classes. But uh, at that point, you know, we, we talk about school debt today. It was a problem then as well. I had taken out some loans and said, I can't go back. I can't finish my master's. I have to go to work. And I got a job. I, I got an internship. I got two more internships and continued working. And I've worked in the field up until last year when I retired after 44 years of being in the museum field. And, and most of that time as the director of a whole series of museums, I found, well, I, I worked in the Bowers Museum in Santa Ana, California. I worked in the Siouxland Heritage Museums in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I um, did the first exhibit on the history of women in Los Angeles in 1982, I think it was. Um, created the Anaheim Museum. It's now known as Museo in, in Anaheim, California. I ran the museums in San Luis Obispo County um, in California. I, then I came over here and created the Aviation Museum in McCarran International Airport. And they, they just changed the name. I don't use the new name. Um, and then I ended up taking over all the county museums here in Clark County, Nevada, and ran all of those. And somewhere in there back in 2009, I got a call about going on this new television show that was starting up. And um, they asked me if I could look at a West Point uniform coat and tell them whether it was real. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And they said, can you do it on camera? And that year, it was the county centennial year. And I was doing a live television show for the county on the county access channel. And I said, yeah, I can do that. And they said, can you tell us what it's worth? And I said, no, I can't. And they said, well, all the experts on this new show have to say what things are worth. I said, fine, get somebody else. You know, they had told me what this show was going to be about, you know, stuff coming into a pawn shop in Vegas. It's like, really? People are going to watch this? Are you kidding me? You know, and and I said, no, I, I get somebody else, get an antique dealer or something. I don't do prices. I don't sell stuff. I run museums. If I sell you something out of my museum, I go to jail. No, I don't do that. And they say, well, we'll try you anyways. Okay. And and they tried me and I guess I passed because I went on to be on the show, you know, and continued to run the museums. You know, that's that's what I was doing was running the county museum system here. But turns out I had no shame on camera at the same time. <laughs> Help me too with this, uh, Mark, because we I was just having a conversation with one of my friends about this. Actually, I was just talking with Craig this morning. And, he's, oh, yeah. and, and what he was saying, a, fr a mutual friend of ours, Craig Gottlieb, who was on this uh, on the show also, and mm -hmm. he um, he was telling me that real progress starts to happen when you separate success from everything else in your life. And the reason why I say this is because a lot of people would have pounced and changed who they were because when you get the opportunity, like you did, and a person says, well, you need to give us a price, and you say, I don't do that. You, as opposed to saying, I'll change who I am, you were like, well, then go get someone else. Where did you learn that strength and who gave you permission to stay as Mark, like authentically? Well, what I realized early on, because I had 
done a number of other things at other museums. I had written a weekly newspaper column in San Luis Obispo. Um, I had often done, you know, the evening news done, you know, if, if a historic building had gotten damaged or something had happened, you know, I was one of those guys that the evening news always came to and said, do you have a comment? You know, I was good for the 15 second or 30 second comment. Um, I, I, I had done that over the years. Not that it was easy for me. I had to train myself to be able to do that. Um, but I had always realized that I was the only one that controlled me. I was the only one that controlled how I was presenting myself to the public, that they didn't care. And when they called me, um, I realized it was up to me to control how I was going to be seen on this show. And it wasn't that they were mean or anything, that they were bad people. They were putting together a show. They had something that they wanted from all the people that went on there. And it was going to be a reality show. Now, reality shows, I found out later, normally you have to try out for. Well, they weren't asking me to try out. They were asking me because they needed people for these first pilot episodes. This, it had never been on. You know, it was, um, it, as it turns out, it was Rick Harrison's idea. And he'd, he'd gotten this sold to the History Channel and they'd bought six episodes, six pilot episodes. And so they just out of the blue, I don't know who recommended him even. You know, to this day, nobody has stepped forward and said, I'm the I'm your fault. You know, that's that, you know, but nonetheless, it 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 made where it was very clear to me that I had to decide who I was going to be and what I was going to do. And I was the director of the museum system. First and foremost, that was my job. And I had run into this problem in the past where I'd been asked by politicians that I knew, could they use me as an endorsement? I had made that mistake once early in my career. And I had said, yes, I'll endorse you. It was a friend of mine. And I said, but you can't say what I do. You can't use the museum as part of the endorsement. And as soon as I saw the endorsement, it was Mark Hall Patton, director of, and it's like, no, you can't do that. Because then it it's, you're using my museum as part of the endorsement. So after that, I said, I will never do that again. You know, and I recognized how much I had to control how I was being presented. And so in this, it was the same kind of thing. It's like, okay, I could say, because legally I could say, yeah, it's worth this amount. I could go out there and look at, you know, eBay or, or auction sites and that and see what, similar items were selling for. And because I wasn't selling it out of the museum, I could do that. But I recognized that I would be going on, I would be doing the show in order to advertise the museum. So I would be doing it as a museologist, as the administrator of the Clark County Museum System. And if I was going to do that, and if the show went anywhere, I would be recognized as a museum person. If I did that, then I would be placing the entire field of museum workers 
in the public as the place to go to find out what your stuff is worth. And I've turned people down for that for years. And there's a legal reason for that. In the IRS code, if you donate something to a museum or to any nonprofit entity, they cannot, by law, tell you what it's worth. It's a legal issue. And it goes back to some problems with the Smithsonian early on. But nonetheless, that's a legal issue. So when people come in and donate something to the museum, here's Aunt Alice's, you know, late 19th century potato masher and and you know there's a wonderful potato masher and you need it for your collection and here it is now tell us what it's worth so we can take it off on our taxes well the museum can't do that and nobody at the museum can tell you what it's worth so i wasn't going to go on and make people think that somebody working in a museum could do that for them so I said no, and and told them up front that was never going to happen. And all the way through, as I've appeared on the show, other issues have come up like that. They have asked me to look at pieces that I have said, I don't think this is legal to be in the United States. I think this is probably an illegally excavated and imported artifact, and I will not look at it, and I will not speak about it on the show. And I don't believe you should have it on the show. And if something like that comes up and it comes to my attention, a couple of times they have said, no, we won't have it on the show. You know, there, there have been other pieces where I don't know it is that it's is there until I come into the scene. We had a, an, a, a, a counterfeit bill, a piece of currency, come into the show one day, and and nobody knew it was coming in on that scene. Um, and you can't own counterfeit U.S. currency; that's illegal. So that when the guy who was in the scene, the seller pulled it out, he, he had um, uh, a U.S. Attorney General's ID, you can own that. But he also had a counterfeit bill that the FBI had seized back in a raid in 1949. And the FBI agents had signed it and handed it to this Attorney General. And this guy had bought these things at, in, at a garage sale in California, and then he was going to sell them to Rick. Well, that's fine, he didn't know it was illegal, Rick wasn't sure, but I come in and it's like, one, Rick, you don't want to buy this. Two, I ain't handling it. And three, you need to walk out this door, down the street, take it to the Treasury Department and turn it in. You can't own it. You know, there, there's all kinds of things like that where I'm aware that, you know, they, they could go ahead and film it and do all of that, and everybody would be in trouble because you're talking about a show that's on in 151 countries. It's it's no longer secret, you know. You can't do this, but you also have to recognize. I have to recognize that on anything I do, I'm also 
representing my field. I'm representing my institution. Anything I'm doing, I'm the one that's representing me and everything I stand for. So it's not up to the show to worry about how I'm representing me. It's up to me. So, you know, I've always taken that upon myself because that's my job, you know, and it's, I'm representing the county at the same time. You know, what a lot of people don't understand is I've never gotten paid for the show. I don't get paid to go on there and I never have, you know, that's fine. I was a county employee. This was done during county time. They can't give me a check, you know, it's, it, that would be getting two paychecks. The county really frowns on that or frowned if while I was working, <laughs> you know, you, you can't do these kinds of things. And, and it's, it's like, sure. I could have somehow taken off a couple of hours and then come back and gone back to, no, I, it's just make it clean. Just be honest with yourself. Be honest with everybody else. Make it clean. I'm doing it for advertising for the museum. I, I had no idea this show was going to take off the way it did. Nobody did, you know? And then when it did, it's like, well, the attendance at the museums went up by 70%. Cool. That was what I wanted, you know? And, you know, it, I didn't, I didn't do it to become famous. You don't go into museum work to become famous. You become anonymous, you know, have, and here question for you. How many museum directors have you met? What? That's right. Today, today. Yeah. You know, how many museologists in total have you met? Uh, I've never heard the word before, before you said it. <laughs> That's right. And that encompasses, you know, your curators of education, your curators of exhibits, your curators of collections, your registrars, your, all the other people that work in museums. And, and all of those terms are different people in different roles within the museum. Um, but it's, it's something where museum people are mainly anonymous. We, you know, what people see, which are the exhibits, the, the front of the building, most museums only show 10% of what they have in their collections because the main thing that a museum does is it preserves the physical memories of a community, you know, and, and their, their job is to preserve this for the future. So you show it for, you show a collection or artifacts for a short period of time, then you put them away because you want these artifacts to be around for hundreds of years. You know, if they're out where light is getting to them, where, People are walking by, so they're getting vibrated. They're, they're you know, having humidity going up and down, temperature going up and down. All of this is damaging the artifacts. So then you want them to go back into a controlled environment in storage. You know? And so for those of us that are in the field, we're looking at things from the standpoint of how do we make sure these things are around long after we're dead? You know, we're looking at things differently. You know, the, the kinds of conversations we have at board, at, at staff meetings and, and around exhibits and that sort of thing are really interesting and fascinating to us and 
boring as heck to most people. You know, but it's great. It's a fun field. It's the most wonderful field out there for people like us. It, it's it's something I wanted to do when I was eight years old and, and had the most wonderful life so far because I got paid to do it. You know, incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Mark, let me ask you this, too. My dad always said to me that if you won't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And mm-hmm. what I've heard you say and through this whole conversation is how you're standing up for who you are and that you're, you're, but let's take it back to young Mark. When did these principles and where did they come? When did they come into your life and who taught you this? Because this, although it's normal to you, it's not normal to everyone because once money gets injected, once fame gets injected, then people are like, well, I can become whoever you need me to be at this time. But what I keep hearing you say is, no, this is who I am. And I've got to make sure that I'm representing not only for myself, but I'm representing for an industry. I'm representing for the other people who are involved in the industry. This is an uncommon thought process. Where did it come from? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I, I'd have to give my parents a lot of credit. Um, and a lot of it's just, I, you know, it's just, that's, it, it, it was, I got to give my parents a lot of credit. You know, my dad was a 20 year Navy vet. Um, you know, mom was a stay at home mom. She was a, an army nurse in World War II. Dad was, um, uh, went into the Navy in 39. He was uh, in underwater demolition in World War II. Uh, went in on Iwo Jima and uh, uh, Okinawa. Uh, he then pushed recruits at, well, he was also in Korea, and then he pushed recruits the last four years he was in. Um, but then he, he'd grown up in Dust Bowl, Oklahoma. Uh, Mom grew up in in uh, California. Um, they met in, uh, 48, got married in 51. I came along in 54. Um, then dad, uh, was, uh, sent to Great Lakes where he was a company commander the last four years he was in, got out in 59 when I was five and, um, ended up, doing what he could, ended up becoming a warehouseman for a school district, small school district in Orange County, California, um, and just just worked. You know, he, he hadn't had a lot of education, um, but he, um, you know, worked hard. He did what was right. Um, I think he had a problem figuring out that my brother and I were not recruits when we were young. We had the shortest hair of any kids in school. Um, <laughs> we, we got our haircuts out at El Toro Marine Corps base. And uh, it was, it was, I think a, a number two cut on top and number one on the side. Uh, so, you know, we had buzz jobs uh, for many years, but um and we just we we were raised that that you did what was right and and you know you had to just do you know do the right thing you know and what that was Mark, just Mark, what was the most uncommon discipline that your dad gave you that at the time you were like ah but now if you told people then he might go to he would might go to prison 
This is, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example with my dad. And I tell, I think I've told this story to a couple of my friends, but my dad put us in front of his 67 MGB GT, his favorite car ever. He put me and my brother there, stood about 15, 20 feet away from us and fired a football at us and said, if it touches my car, I'm going to whoop you. And my brother learned how to catch a football. He would have red forearms, like completely like smashed forearms because my brother was catching everything because he was like, I'm not catching a beat down. This to us was normal dad. But now I think about it and I'm like, if I saw a dad doing that in my neighborhood, I would call child protective services. Can you tell us a specific story? that you and your brother experienced with your dad with the one and two buzz cuts that would put him in prison today? Um, no, he didn't do anything like that. I mean, he spanked us. He spanked <laughs> us with a belt. Um, it was a spanking, though at least one time he spanked me hard enough that the belt broke. Um, but uh, it was always on on my aft end, and, and it wasn't, it was on the outside of the pants. Yeah. Um, and the time that the belt broke, it was, he was wrong to spank me. I was, I was wrestling with my sister and I, I, I actually drooled and he thought I'd spit on my sister and spitting you did not do because he'd grown up, like I say, in Dust Bowl, Oklahoma. And that was not something you did at that point. And you did not spit on your sister. That was not something that was allowed. Um, but you know, he, he was, you know, a man of, of his era. And um, it was something that, you know, that stopped when I was, I don't know, 10, I guess, something like that. It was, it was not something that continued. Um, you know, it, it was interesting. It was, you know, you didn't, um, you know, he didn't hit, he didn't do that sort of thing. He, he, with dad, it wasn't that he would do that sort of thing. What you had to understand with my dad was because of the war, you couldn't shake him awake because if you shook him awake, he would come up swinging. And that was because of uh, what we would think of as PTSD today. You know, he never, he never connected. But I know I, I can remember at least one time that I made that mistake and he was sleeping on his back and I touched his shoulder to wake him up and he came up with a fist and he stopped with the fist was right in front of my face, but he opened his eyes and realized where he was and stopped. And it wasn't that he was coming after me. It was a, a reaction from war because this was a man that had been, you know, he had killed in war. And you had to learn that that was not something you did. He was not a man that had come home and started drinking to deal with life. He couldn't drink. It was, it was funny. There was only one point that I remember that he tried to drink one night because he was very upset. And, and it turned out that he couldn't drink. He projectile vomited when he tried to drink and, and just could not drink. Um, and uh, he, he, so he had been, I mean, underwater demolition was a suicide squad, basically. He was in team 12 in, in, at the, at the, towards the end of, of World War II. And you can look it up. It's, it's a, one of the known teams. Um, and, you know, 
went in in there's a book called the naked warriors that came out in 40 1947 i believe and there's a a, a a couple of pages on a particular incident and the individual in that incident is not identified but it's my dad um and he he told me about the book and it and it says something about me that he told me about the book he told me about the incident he got separated and he ended up on a rock off the coast of of i think this was iwo and um he was he was too close in to be able to get back in the water without getting shot but uh, but he couldn't so he was he was stuck where he was and they had to get a boat in close enough to be able to get him back off um and and the japanese were shooting at him and all of this and and he would have gotten killed otherwise but they got him off of there um but it's it's interesting because it, it was an incident that was in this book and he said you know i'd love to have a copy of that book well i started looking around for one because even then i was a, a bibliophile and i ended up finding three copies of the book for him um because i've also always been a collector um and um you know he he found that incident in the book and pointed it out to me so i i marked it and i i still have a couple of copies of the book in my library um but that's that was the sort of thing and and you know mom was also uh, I mean, she she left nursing when i came along and i'm the eldest of the three of us kids um and she you know she became a stay-at-home mother dad worked at, at his job it was you know we didn't grow up with much money you know this was not a well-paid job it was a school district of six schools so this was not a huge school district um but he grew with the school district started out with two schools and grew to six and when he finally retired they they tried to bring on a new person and they finally broke up the job into i think it took three people to do the job after dad left because nobody else could do the the job by themselves um but that was the kind of person that he was you know and and um you know he he, he was just he was a good man um and and um but uh you know he he also showed you know if you take on a job you do it you you um you and and, and we we and our our family you know we laughed a lot we you know wasn't that we always got along on everything to this day my sister and my brother and i we we and our our our, our um spouses get together once a year uh because our parents are both dead and and we get together once a year just to stay in touch with each other um it's not that we all agree on everything by any means um but we, you know, we're still a family. Yeah. So Mark, how, how is it when you're an expert in what you do and you're, I mean, you're the, like, you're the Tom Brady of the, uh, the museologist, right? And so you're, you're the, you're the one you're, like I said, you're to, to your wife, what's your wife's name? Colleen. Okay. Colleen, Colleen, yes. your husband is the Justin Timberlake of museums. <laughs> so I just want to let you know. So being in that spot, is it hard for you, Mark, to watch movies? Like, I mean, what's the most, what's the movie? Because any, any industry, if you're in an industry and you see a movie about your industry, you're like, that's crap. 
is there oh. any is there any movie that you're watching about maybe history, you know, like um what would you say like National Treasure or Indiana Jones? Is there one that you're like, yes, that's it? And then tell us the ones that are garbage that you're like, that's not even close. Oh, there's, there's <laughs> none of the ones like uh, National Treasure or Night at the Museum or any of those. Those are all just, they're fun to watch. There's, there's no reality to them. I mean, you mean they're, the exhibits just, don't come to life at night? No. And, and, <laughs> Trust me, I have been in most of my museums at all hours of the day and night. I have almost always been the on-call person if the alarms go off. I have been there to do stand-ups for the morning news at three o'clock in the morning. I have, you know, so I've been at the museum at all hours of the day and night. And I should tell you that when I was in college, I also worked nights at a mortuary. So I don't see, hear, or smell anything of a paranormal nature. Uh, so it's it's like none of that happens. Can you watch uh, it? Can you watch Indiana Jones and be like, yes? Oh, are, you are you watching? Are you rooting for Indy? Oh, Is of course. Okay, you're supposed to. You know, I, that's fine. I have no problem with that. It's just. It's a movie. It, that's the whole thing. If you remember, it's a movie. The ones that I despise are, you know, the the Oliver Stone type things that are that, you know, here's you know here's the the real way that history happened. No, it didn't. And you don't get to make up people and say, well, it's just a movie, but this is the real way it happened. No, no. You're lying to people. I don't like lying to people. If you're making up a fun story, everybody knows Indiana Jones is a fun story. Your faces don't melt off if you open the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? We oh, no. got this. Yeah, but you know, but in, Temple, in Temple of Doom, the Um Num Shiba, that is classic. Yeah. Um Num Shiba, yeah, well, when, he, when he grabs the heart out of the chest, that doesn't happen? Yeah. That didn't happen no. in history, Mark? You know, and, and, you know, and, but there's sometimes there's some great lines. I have used very often the line, he chose poorly. <laughs> I have used that line many times. And, you know, those kinds of things, great. I'll, I'll use some of the lines, but that doesn't make it good history. It makes it a fun story. You know, that's so great. I'm, it, I'm fine any... with that. It's like, I, I don't, I don't read historical novels. I read history. You know, I, if, if I'm going to read a novel, it'll be science fiction or fantasy. It's not going to be an historical novel. I don't need that. It's much more interesting to read history. Is there any war, is there any war movies that you've seen that you said, wow, they did, I mean, they got this one and, and I'm signing off on it. Or you get the stamp of approval. What, what movies, top three, would get Mark's stamp of approval, if there's even three, in the war space? I really liked The Sand Pebbles. I don't know whether you've ever watched it. Okay, don't. This don't. was one with Steve McQueen. It was set on the China Navy boats, the ones that were on the um, uh, rivers in China before World War II, our boats. 
Um, It was based around the Penne incident uh, where the Japanese uh, strafed one of our uh, river boats in China. Um, I actually saw that with my dad, who was in the old China Navy in 1940, uh, before World War II. And and he watched that and talked about some of the parts of it that were real, that that he remembered, some of the ways that you interacted with the Chinese um, um, workers on the boats and that sort of thing. you you always kick them. You never hit them with your hands because you could kick them. They didn't lose face, but if you hit them with your hands, they did. And weird things like that. And and um, and they got those kinds of things right. Um, the um, interestingly enough, um, the uh, biopic Patton was done quite well. Okay. Um, and uh, and that's one. One of the series that my son did on his channel, I mentioned that my son has his own channel on YouTube, and he does a whole series on based on a true story um, movies, and he tears them apart. But he also did one on Patton, and he he actually liked it as well. We don't always agree on whether the, <laughs> the movies are good or bad. Um, uh, he he thought that the aviator was fairly good i thought it was terrible but that's all right um but uh the um eh, he's my son he's supposed to disagree well, and with you're, and you're right i mean if you're dad you're right you got that that gene you know what i mean you got that one um, well and and he's he's an historian too so he's going to disagree with me but Patton was a very good movie and it was very good because it didn't try to do his entire life it just did the world war ii years and where it truncated some things, it didn't get rid of them. It just took the slapping incidents, for example, and turned it into a single incident rather than three incidents and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, so and it and it left it left him. Um, um, it didn't didn't try to make him just a hero or just a villain. It left him human. Tropic Thunder. <laughs> To tell you the truth, I've never watched the whole movie. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've that... only seen little little tidbits of it. But my guess is it would probably be, be quite funny. Yet the little <laughs> bits that I've seen of it have been quite humorous. What do you um, what do you wish that people knew about the show? Like and what they knew about TV? Because we see the Justin Timberlake to your wife, the Justin Timberlake of museologists here, the Tom Brady. And we see this this finished just, project. Just the, just the retired museum guy. <laughs> and just the retired museum guy. So you know, remember, so, my wife is the smart one in the family. <laughs> she's 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 the one that has to put up with all of this stuff. We we you gotta gotta remember something. Colleen and I have been married forty-three years. Wow. She we've been married long before any of this celebrity garbage happened so tell you me know. the effects tell me the effects of it like the the parts that oh, people terrible. don't realize it, it's it well it like i say we've been married 43 years we got married in 1978 we knew each other in high school we <laughs> met at a four and five year high school reunion and then got in 77 and, and got married in 78 and um so we had this long marriage. We have two wonderful kids and, and um, they're both great. They're out of the house and, and doing wonderfully well. But 
this had this it, we had no idea that this was going to happen and this started in 09 and by the end of 09 it had already blown up and it is a very strange thing when you go from being completely anonymous and you have no idea how much you expect to go through life being anonymous until you're not and it is something that changes your life we cannot go out anywhere and uh just talk about life you know you when you've been married that long we you know you, you expect to be able to talk about oh you you know you remember what so and so said when we talked to him last time or you know do you, you know do you remember what we're supposed to get at the store or whatever at this point somebody is you you just take for granted that somebody's always watching you somebody's always listening to you they're not necessarily saying anything but it's always happening I mean, we went out to dinner last night and the manager of the restaurant, it was Marie Callender's. It's not, a, not we don't go out fancy. We don't, because I, I, it's not like we're getting money for this. But, you know, the manager's like, I love you on the show, you know, and and I'm hearing him talk to the cook and, and the other people, the other wait staff and that. And it's like, oh, do you ever watch Pawn Stars? That's, that's the guy from Pawn Stars. And I don't know, you know. We go to to grocery stores and and Colleen says she knows that I've been spotted if somebody's talking about the county museum in the grocery area or something, because nobody talks about the county museum or about Pawn Stars or about whatever, you know. It's it's you you realize you know she she talks about uh, following the bubble of goodwill because I. People will come up and ask me for a photo or whatever, and and I say, sure, yeah, fine, okay, you know, I I don't have a problem with that, and they they the reaction that I get is is nearly a hundred percent positive from people I meet, and that's how they see me on the show, and that I I always try to be nice to people on the show, even if I have to say, you know, your your item is garbage. You know, it's it's a fake. I never say it's garbage. I, I try to let them down easily unless they're an idiot. But even if they're an idiot, I, I try not to be an idiot back to them, you know, because there's no reason to be, you know, there's no reason to be mean to people if you don't have to be, you know, and, and so I try not to. And there are people that have not liked what I've said to them. And it's like, okay i've got no dog in this fight you know if if you don't like what i have to say okay <laughs> you know don't like it fine you know but the the weird thing is you you also in in the middle of dinner we'll have people come over and interrupt us for a photograph and we've we've been out to dinner with friends who have a room on the strip where they where they have a show and I get pulled out of dinner for a photo. You know, I can't hide. You know, I if I'm out somewhere, I've always got my hat. You know, I'm not wearing it now because I'm in my house. Yeah. But you know, I'm always wearing a red shirt. 
But even if I'm not, it doesn't matter. I can wear green or blue or gray or whatever. I'll still get recognized. This has not been off since 1976. <laughs> That's when I grew my beard. I have never taken it off. So I've got a beard. I have a voice that for whatever reason, people recognize. I've had people walk across grocery stores and walk across other businesses because they hear me talking. And they say, it is you. Well, yes, I guess, you know, it's, it's like, whatever, you know. Mark, Mark, what's, and, the, Mark what's, the, what's the part that you love the most about it? Because we, we have the parts that you don't realize, like, you know, getting interrupted at dinner. And if you, if you see Mark out, okay, if you're listening to this, you see Mark out and he's eating, respect his time. Right. I know he loves that part of it, all the stuff. But tell us the part that is like, I like this part. I want to give that up because there are the the, the advantages. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm and, sure if you go to Maria Calendars and there's a line, you ain't waiting. You get you get oh, the yes, right away. Oh, yes, I am. So tell me the oh, top yes, three like advantages of this. Well, I and I am waiting. I don't, I don't get to bypass the line. <laughs> You're um, a good person. You're I, better I, than me, man. I'd be passing yeah. up all those people at Maria calendars. No, I, I once in a very great while, <laughs> I will get past the line once in a very great while we will get, you know, your, your luggage is overweight by a pound. Oh, don't worry about it. You know, something like that. No, the, the, the most positive things are when, some little kid comes up to me and says, I really like history because I've been watching you all of my life, you know, and that, or, or not, not even a little kid, somebody who's, who's in their teens or early twenties are saying, you know, comes up to me and says, I went into history because of you, you know, or I, I am volunteering at my local museum because of you anything that i could do and that was part of why i stayed doing the the show all this time is we just finished the 20th season to filming for it. um yeah i mean it's still a pawn shop in vegas <laughs> but the 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 fact that i was given the opportunity to have this soapbox to say history's cool History's neat. Let me show you how excited I am about history. And and I am. I always have been. I've always been a geek. I mean, I've I when when I was 10, I used to build museums in my patio at home. And because I was the eldest of the three children, my brother and sister, and they remember this with horror to this day, they had to play museum with me. So I'd set up a museum, I'd get all the old stuff in the house that I thought was old, and I would set up displays, and then they had to take my tours through the museum. That's how I did it. I didn't charge them. They were free museums, but you know, they they had to go through my museums. And both my sister and brother remembered this. You know, and they they will talk about it to this day. Mark, what do you wish that the community because you live in you live in Las Vegas? Yeah. What do you wish that the community or any community for that matter across the country and across the world understood about museums? 
what I would wish, what I would hope is that they would understand that museums are the place that holds their physical memories, that that is the place that it deserves their support. And the museums have to think about this as well. And the museums need to hold the physical memories of all of the community, not just the board's parents and grandparents, um, but all the groups in town, all the businesses, all of this sort of thing, but that this is where the future is going to know about you today. This is where they're going to know about how this community existed, how it worked with itself, how it came to be, what it's going to be in the future. And without this, these artifacts, you are going to be lobotomizing the future. You are going to be making the future unable to understand itself. You know, this is part of the problem when people start talking. It's, it's something I find interesting. I, I will watch little snippets of things on YouTube, and it is interesting to me when I hear younger people and to me there's a lot of younger people out there these days um you know people in their 30s or 20s or teens just randomly throw out some garbage about history as if they know it and they don't you know and it's and it's interesting i don't think i was that stupid at that point in my life and probably not because i was an historian you know i was i was the guy that was correcting them even then but we have dropped history out of the curriculum. We have dropped history out of a lot of other places that it used to be. We have, you know, there's, there's just a lot of places that history has now been uh, turned into a way of trying to, uh, to play politics and the one nice thing about museums is no matter what labels you put on the walls, nobody's going to read those. Well, we, we do understand that. We still are going to write them, but people aren't going to read those. Kids today all have, you know, these things. They've all got their phones. They're going to look up whatever they want, but they are going to want to see real things. And seeing it on that screen is not the same as seeing it in person. Museums have those real things. And that's something that museums can give them. And if you see, you know, the, the County Museum here, for example, is a 30 acre site. It has 20 restored buildings there. It has the main museum building. It has a little recreated ghost town area. It has walking trails. It has the largest patch of creosote desert left in the Vegas Valley. Now, creosote desert was all that was here in the early part of the 19th century. That's what the first people saw here. So if you're going to see what this was before Las Vegas, before Clark County existed, you come to the County Museum and you can walk through it. You can see what was here. You can understand when people talk about problems of today, 
this is what used to be here. So now you can see where we started and you can build from there and get some understanding of why what we have today is a little different. And we have to understand that in order to start making some changes where we need to make changes, you know, and all of these kinds of things. We have the home of the first black family that was allowed to live in Boulder City, which was the first segregated community in Southern Nevada. You know, it was going to be bulldozed. So we took it from Boulder City and we plopped it down at the museum and we restored it and the whole story is told in that building. So we've got these kinds of things at the museums. We've got these stories being told. You know, and I still say we, I'm going to say that because I was there for 28 years. You know, I'm retired. Yeah, I got that, but I'm still going to say we. Um, but, you know, that's the kinds of things that we have to have. And we need to be able to say that and show that. And museums need to show that. And any community has the right to its history and has the right to a museum and has the right to be proud of itself and should show the good and the bad. You know, the fact is, there isn't any place that's been all good, you know, because we're not all good, but there's no place that's been all bad either. Well, maybe Dachau and a few places like that, but even Dachau, and I've been to Dachau, you've got Dachau, the camp, and you've got Dachau, the city. There's the city of Dachau, and there's a city museum in Dachau which talks about the history of the city. Now, the city is not the camp. It's a really interesting, weirdly dichotomous area there. But they've got its history that goes back hundreds of years. That's not just the camp. And then they've got the camp, which is, you know, Arbeit macht frei. And you walk through that gate and it's like, there's something really weird about walking through a work camp and a death camp and seeing school groups with kids in shorts and and wandering around and and mothers and fathers and kids and all of this it just it tweaks your head when you're looking at it if you understand all that went on there you know but that's how we can get a handle on our past and that's what we have to do in order to understand where we're going in the future because if we forget what we're capable of we're going to do it again you know i yeah i like history yeah. <laughs> you may get that well, out of this well, well mark how can the like because for me for myself growing up um we grew up in i would say the kind of lower middle class uh Lompoc, california shout out to that uh that town right which near which town Lompoc, California, right near. Oh, San Lompoc! Luis Obispo, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I've been to Lompoc. Yeah, now, great area. In in Lompoc, it wasn't the number one thing in my family that we were talking about going to museums. It wasn't that that wasn't, and so I didn't understand them later on. Uh, getting a chance to go to London and go to uh, the museums there and uh, go in Paris and things like that, then I started to have an appreciation. What, like, how can a community support? The museums and what is the best way for us to be able to get involved because a lot of people think like well i just don't know i mean maybe i don't have any artifacts i don't ha how, how can everyone give us give us some ways that people can support the museums in their community well i hate to tell you the first thing first thing is resources it's money it's it's you know 
there's uh, outside of maybe the J. Paul Getty Museum, there's there's very few museums that have enough money, especially in places like Lompoc. I know the museum there. I've been there a number of times. It's a little uh, Carnegie Library Museum, um, or it's in a Carnegie Library. Um, and uh, a place like that can always use help, you know, go to their fundraisers, you know, look, you know, attend their events, you know, do something to support them if they're if they're going up before your your city council and that be one of the voices saying, yes, we we see this as something that the community needs. This is a value to the community. Run to or, or get involved with it. Be on the board. You know, when you can, you know, be a voice there you know, get involved with it. Not everybody can do that, but if there are a few more people that do get involved, that's good for it. And it's good that more people get involved. Unfortunately, a lot of times those who get involved, uh, there are people that want to get involved because they want their families in there. So there, there are selfish reasons to get involved. What they need are people that want to get involved because they see the value of the museum to the community. And, you know, some people that aren't getting involved because they want um, they 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 want the museum to do better, not their family to do better. You know, don't get involved for a selfish reason. Get involved for the community reason. You know, that's that's always been one of my things. But you know, understand this has been my life. So I, I, I've, I have been in a field that is markedly ill-paid, um, and that's fine. I, I, I chose that field, and that's all right. But um, it's, it's something that will help your community, and you know, look to do what you can. If you're in a business, look to see what, what you might be able to do as well. You know, if the museum uh, is not getting school tours, maybe you're, you are working with a large business that can help underwrite the school tours. You know, that's something that helps your business, makes you look good, and it helps the museum. You know, there's a lot of times that, that you know, Walmarts and Kmarts, you know, don't have Kmarts anymore, but <laughs> places like that, I'm going back, um, but you know it. they they yeah they they can underwrite uh, those kinds of things and and other large businesses. There's all kinds of things like that that can be done that just help the the local museum. And a lot of times, local museums are the ones that need the most help. The really big museums they have entire departments that are just for fundraising. One of the reasons I never went after um, running large museums is I always wanted to be a hands-on director. You know, I became a director when I founded the um, Anaheim Museum back in 84 and was a director for the rest of my career. And I always wanted to be somebody that you know knew exactly what was happening in every part of the museum 
that, you know, I wasn't just having to think about, you know, um, what's the next fundraiser coming up? Who do I have to schmooze for this large grant? Who do I have to go after for this next chunk of money and all of that sort of, no, I wanted to know, okay, what are, let's let's talk about what we're doing for the next uh, exhibits you know what are the next collections you know do, do we is there some collection that we need to go talk about you know what's coming in through the front door and and you know do we need to look at this i want to do some research on this subject I, i'm you know i wanted to be involved with everything you know i'm I've got enough of an ego that I have no problem with doing everything. Um, and I've never had a problem with my ego. You may have noticed that. Um, but uh, it was something that by keeping my what I wanted to do within the scale that I could do it, it allowed me to have the kind of uh, job that I wanted and run the size of museum system that I wanted to run. And so I never went after the, the larger institutions where you've got hundreds of people on staff and all of that, and all you talk to are your upper management. And so you hardly have time to get to know the names of most of the people that are walking around in the corridors. You know, that was not my idea. Mark, I want to go back to something that you just said. Um, you said that in the event that we're not enriching ourselves with history, um, we're, we are at risk of, of letting it happen again. Can you talk to that right now? Because I think a lot of times, especially generations, uh, you know, younger generations and myself included at times when my dad would want me to know about my family or want me to know about the history, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever pop. But the new stuff is like this. And he'd be like, now you need to understand. And now I understand those things because I've repeated some of the mistakes that my, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother made, and I wish that I just would have listened to my pop. Can you talk to that a little bit more and how impactful that will be as we move forward? Um, because there's a lot of people that would say, like, okay, Mark, uh, you know, I know that you're the Justin Timberlake of uh, historians, but, um, but how is an artifact from like 1950 or a story from 1950 going to help me today when I have my phone and I could do everything with my phone and I have all this technology, but you're telling me that things of the past can trump that technology. Like, can you talk to that a little bit? Um, yeah. Um, what I would say is, yeah, you've got your phone. Problem is you have no idea what's right on that phone. And the, the, <laughs> I, you love like you, that. I love you, Mark. I, lo I, I love you. You need, they, I tell you, this is why your wife needs to understand that the Tom Brady of historians. Oh, my wife doesn't need to understand anything from me. Not after 43 years. I need to understand her. That's you're why we've been married. The no, no, the, 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 the the reality is, and it's, and it is a problem. When, when I was in school, we were taught when, when I was in, in college, we were taught, you have to vet your sources. You have to vet where you're getting your information from. And it was, and, and there was a lot being taught at that point about look at, at, you know, what books you're using, what, 
what letters you're using, what, what original documents you're using, all of that sort of thing. The real problem with these is that you don't get to do that in a lot of places. You know, um, the, the Wikipedias and that sort of thing, the, the idea behind it was sort of all right, but it has gotten hijacked and it is not being vetted and corrected the way it was supposed to be. You, I, I started correcting errors in it early on and just gave up. It's not worth my time to correct it. And the kinds of errors that are in there and are purposely put into places in you know, one of the most used encyclopedic sites on the, that, that people go to are horrendous, are stupid. You know, there's there's a great one here. There's um, uh, Sunset Park, which is the headquarters park for Clark County Parks and Recreation. Clark County Parks and Recreation's headquarters park. If you look up the site for Sunset Park, there is a reference in there to the fact that 200 bodies were dug up there. They weren't. It's a flat out lie. Now, have we been able to get that corrected? No. Has the county been able to get that corrected? No. Wikipedia will not correct it because their internal correctors will not accept the correction. Wow. It's just a lie. And things like that exist there. That's, that's just one I happen to know about because I tried to correct it. No, give it, they give don't it. trust me. I'm merely the Clark County Museum's administrator. They don't know that okay. you're the Justin Timberlake. Timberlake. They so when don't we start, care when we start because these anonymous people who don't know anything don't trust the Clark County Museum's administrator. Oh, really? Okay. You know, so that's the kind of thing. If you trust something you're carrying in your pocket all day, and you're hooking on to God only knows where and trusting those facts in air quotes, you're trusting garbage. You have no idea what you're trusting. If you don't know how to vet the information that you're using, it does you no good and all you're doing, and, and basically, you're being led down the primrose path. And it depends on which sites you're using. And these days, the real problem is the way these algorithms are working, they're taking your brain and they're leading you down the path that the algorithm thinks you want to go down. And so if it wants you, you know, if it thinks you want to go down some particular political path, or some particular um, whatever path, it's going to send you down that path with all the information it's showing you. So it is it is balkanizing society in a way that is not good, you know. And and it's it's becoming really bizarre.
you know, and it's and it's interesting because it's making it more and more difficult for people just to talk to each other. You don't have to agree with each other. Hell, we've never agreed with each other. You know, I've, I, you know, whatever your particular point of view is on whatever, you know, that's fine. I don't care. I'll talk to you. You know, you don't know my particular view on everything, you know, but if you want me to look at an artifact and tell you what it is, I'll do the research if I have time and tell you what I can about it. It doesn't matter whether I like vaccines or I like motor cars or I like motorcycles or I like to fish or I like to climb mountains or I'm a Catholic or a Muslim or I or whatever. It doesn't matter. But the way these things are being set up now, it's it's saying, well, you can't talk to each other unless you've got all these other things in the same silo with you. This is not good. Yeah. You know? you're, so but, what, you're, what you're saying, Mark, on record is that not everything on the Internet is true? <laughs> Why, yes, I will state on record, not everything on the Internet is true. Okay, give me your, give me, give me, give me Mark's top three that just grind you, that are so blatantly, obviously a lie that most people just don't, like, I'll tell you this. I have people, I've been in the professional beauty industry. I was in the, uh, in the professional beauty industry for 29 years. Recently sold the salons and moved on to some other things. Yeah. But a, a lie that people would tell me all the time is I permed my hair when I was a kid. And it's been curly ever since. This is an absolute, like, I don't even understand how a person can Even I know that. better than that. So... That's, that's not how perming works. Yeah. But pe but women will believe it. So tell me, give me the top three for you. That just make you like want to shake somebody. Ah, uh, geez, I, I there's there's so many out there. Um, it's it's. There, there's, there's just too many. I, I, I get the, I get people. One of the, one of the problems of being the expert. And by the way, I don't consider myself an expert. The Justin I, Timberlake. I, no, no, <laughs> I'm the retired museum guy. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I know how to do research. I, I and that's it. And I, and my, my research brain works a little different than a lot of research brains because I don't I never get bogged down with the question I get bogged down with the answer mm. so I find other ways of asking the question if I can't find the answer with the first question I just I just think of other ways of getting at it um, and a lot of times I find new ways of getting at it that other people don't think about um, which is one of the reasons that I can normally find things that other people can't um so anyways uh, and and so but being on the show people think that i know everything and and they think that it's somehow genetic so they will stop me 
at a store or on the street or, you know, in, in a business somewhere and literally, I mean, you know, and, and pull something out of their pocket and say, what is this? You know, and, and it, and, and really what it is, is a rusty piece of metal, you know? Um, and I, I, I had, I had somebody come in one day, came into the museum and they had a, a bag full of what they thought were ancient coins. And these had come out of the bottom of a lamp um, that they had. And um, so you probably know where I'm going with this. Um, they, this guy had, had really magnified these coins and, and he found these markings on the coins. And a number of them had these, these mysterious markings on them. So he wanted me to look at them so I could tell him, I, I could see the markings. He, he was going to point out these markings for me. And then he had he'd gotten his wife convinced that these markings were there. She hadn't seen them to begin with, but he, he kept making her look at them. So she finally saw the markings and, um, went over and over and over this and and finally she she was convinced and so they brought this bag of coins from wherever they were from Oregon or Washington or some other state brought them all the way down here so I could see them because I had to tell him what they were um because nobody else in the world could tell them what they were and I looked at them and I said this is a box of the punch outs from electrical boxes and they use them as a weight in lamps and he said no 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 these are coins and, and let me let me show you and, and and he kept pointing them out and I, I looked at him and said no these are punch outs from electrical box no 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 let me no we're going to stop here now because you'll continue to point at these things and I will continue to tell you that they are punch outs and let me explain to you how this works, how you, you convince your brain to see something. This is anthropomorphizing. This is how you train your eyes to see something. I said, have you ever looked at a, a wall or a ceiling, uh, like a popcorn ceiling or a wall with just a random pattern um, on it and, and started seeing faces in that pattern? He said, well, "Yeah, I've done that, but it's that. It's not that. These, these are coins. Let me finish. You know, you do that. That's that's anthropomorphized. That you, your brain is trained to do that. It's trained to find patterns. That's normal. That's okay. It's nothing bad. You're not going crazy. It's supposed to do that. That's okay. And what you're doing on this is you you looked at these so long and so much. What you have seen." are indeed scratches on them that happens but they're not minted coins they're the same size and they've been banged over and over and over again so they have got scrapes on them and you're trying to make sense of those scrapes they're not letters they're not numbers they're scrapes and so these are not coins you know i've looked at ancient coins. I have ancient coins in my own collection. These aren't them. 